I'm Shane Kilkelly. I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit, the podcast of the cybernetic Marxists. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about cybernetic Marxists, actually. Uh, we're going to be talking about a book. Um, it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's a bit of a strange book. It's called Red Plenty. Um, I think it was published in 2010 uh, and written by one Francis Spufford. Um, it's not exactly a work of fiction, and it's not exactly a historical work either. I think Spufford de- describes it as a fairy tale, <laughs> which is a bit strange. Um, yeah. <laughs> And it's um, it's a fictional it's a sort of fictionalized account of the um, the Soviet Union through the fifties and sixties and the kind of beginning of the seventies and specifically uh, circling around this uh, ambition to create a cybernetic communism um, that would provide uh, just incredible bounty and, and plenty for all of its citizens and ultimately why that didn't really pan out um, and it does so by taking the, the the perspectives of various sort of characters uh, occupying various uh, parts in the Soviet hierarchy and following them over the course of two or two and a bit decades. Um, so, Kyle, what did you think of the book? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I guess I'm going through a pretty hectic time in my life right now, and uh, it's it's been a little bit rough and reading this extremely depressing book didn't help at all (laughs) so depressing (laughs) Uh, uh, however i have a lot of positive things to say about the book and i will say that um yeah i mean i mean this is just a personal note but I'm moving away from the town I've lived in. I lived in Kyoto, Japan for about five years now and went to grad school here, did my doctoral course here and didn't finish. And I, you know, this book kind of read like my reading list from my doctoral uh, program. Like it doesn't cover every book I read during that time, but the notes, um, the footnotes and the end notes, or the end notes, I should say, uh, pretty much just cover like, oh yeah, I read that. I read that. I read that. I read that. that. (laughs) So I feel like I pretty much read like a very similar, uh, bibliography to what, uh, the author, uh, read in preparing this book. Um, so I do feel pretty well, uh, qualified to uh, speak to what it has to say um, although I suffer from exactly the same kind of myopia that uh, he mentions in the acknowledgments about how you know he only used English sources as well I only had English sources as well so <laughs> it's like I, I can confirm the extent to which this book has interesting things to say about the books he read but you know I'm, I'm not a Sovietologist in any sense of the word at all yeah, that's it. It's it's interesting that it's um like it's familiar familiar material because um for me it's like I I kind of had a relatively weak grasp on the entirety of kind of Soviet history and and specifically of this period actually um I found I found the book to be very enlightening. Um, yeah, it, it presents the material in a very um, comprehensible way. Um, even the, the, the quite technical stuff, uh, is, is fairly easy to grasp, uh, here compared to in some texts. Uh, but I think, uh, as for my feelings of the book, about the book, um, yeah, it was just a really difficult read because, um, 
it kind of brought me back to that place of just sort of deep uh depression that was uh you know characteristic of all my years in grad school and um and yeah and actually this book was uh uh, to a significant extent inspired by the work of uh, Michael Ellman and uh, you know reading his socialist planning book for like the third time or something uh, was just the thing that like convinced me to uh, give up on my doctorate because um, it was it was just uh, as as Spufford says um, he has a very sort of biting style and uh, <laughs> he's kind of <laughs> He's in, in that book. He's kind of trying to convince people to never attempt this again. I think is sort right. of like the the uh, <laughs> the message <laughs> there. Um, and so I think it finally got through to me that was like, oh, this is probably not a fruitful direction for research. Um, so yeah, it was a really really difficult read. Um, not in the sense that the prose is difficult, but just in the sense that it was emotionally very draining. Yeah. Um, it's um, yeah, because like it, it again, the, the the prose isn't difficult at all. I found it to be a, a quite a breezy read, and I I don't read fiction very quickly usually. Um, uh, I, I do have one small issue with the kind of way it's presented in that, like some of the chapters are, um, pretty pretty heavy with the kind of economic and the political sort of theory and like the um the technical stuff, but then there there are some chapters where. Uh, there's a lot of window dressing initially, and then two characters sit down at a table and they expo dump the political and technical stuff, and then they go outside and have a walk. And it's kind of bookended by um, stuff that like it sets the scene, but uh, I, I didn't get a, a massive amount of um, amount out of you know. Right, in the, in the sense that you felt that the fiction didn't add very much uh, to the sort of historical details he was trying to convey. Uh, I think, I, I suspect I might have just missed some because, um, like, the one I'm thinking of in particular is the kind of, um, the lady who's settling in at the science town out in the, the middle of nowhere. And um, I think I think I might have just been been breezing over some of the, the details. And I think maybe a second read would give a bit more. But um, no, it was, I thought it was very well written. And it, it, did, a gr it did a good job of um, presenting these kind of, like, interlocking forces in such a way that it becomes obvious to the reader what the contradictions are and it's like they'll just sort of like characters will be describing some like dynamic of how the economy works and it just becomes very clear what the perverse incentives are and what the um what the problems are going to be in later chapters which i think is kind of like it's it's and it's not it's not easy to explain that sort of stuff so i think the, the author did a great job there yeah, and I think it works so much better in this kind of uh, novelistic style uh, than it does in, say, the style of um, normal sociological prose. Because you can describe these things in a very sort of detached uh, way as an outside observer describing the motion of a system. But the way that the author here um, really gets in the head of these characters um, and describes their, their sort of feelings of anxiety um, and what, what concerns them, um, I think does a lot to make this comprehensible in, um, in, in quite an effective way. 
it, it reminds me a lot of like a, a sort of like 19th century uh, uh, French novels, like uh, Balzac or something. Uh, is you know that 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 kind of like sociological novel that was was popular at that time, not in English but um, in, in French, um, just trying to grasp like social change through different characters. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's important for this work, especially because like, and it, it becomes very clear in the kind of early chapters that this is, this is quite, from our perspective now, this is quite an alien culture and an alien way of seeing the world that like, um, the, the way the characters initially sort of interact with the society they're in and the kind of historical ambitions of that society are very different from the way we think of ourselves today and the and our society it, it actually it seems very strange initially um and it would be hard to see how you would pull that off without kind of having this um narrative style to kind of ground it in but yeah so the it it's divided into six parts and they kind of all in each each part there's an introduction that's written from the author's voice followed by chapters from the character's voice and in the introduction to part one we're told that it's again it's not a fiction it's not really a history it's more of a fairy tale and he kind of links it to these um, Russian folk myths that would often include a component of like um, a cornucopia or a horn of plenty that would, uh, you know, produce ham and butter and all the nice things in the world. And that there was this, uh, you know, with the, an obvious to sort of desire for um, for better conditions to live in. And ultimately, like how the, the mid-century Soviet Union, like, made some sincere attempt to actually do that for its citizens. And particularly on the direction of um, Nikita Khrushchev, that wanting to create this uh, planned economy that would be technically driven and optimized in such a way that it would just provide um, endless bounty um, and just flowing commodities for the citizens um, in such a way that would be like more efficient and would outperform the kind of wasteful chaos of a market economy. Um, and ultimately, like by the end of the Soviet Union, nobody believed in this this dream anymore, really. But um, for for quite a while, it was taken seriously. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's interesting because um, you know what they would have thought of as plenty uh, is very much the world we grew up in, right? Um, uh, sort of their wildest dreams of wealth. Uh, I mean, I I grew up relatively poor uh for most of my childhood uh but i could see around me or like you know visit friends houses uh who who really lived that standard of living that these 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 characters uh, aspired to right so i think it's important to note that uh material plenty that uh, these socialists were looking for is certainly not a thing that capitalism can provide for everyone, but it did provide it for a fairly sizable <laughs> number of people. <laughs> yeah. um, and and I think that uh, the particular problems that we have right now with capitalism are, to some extent, the kind of problems of, of, of want and scarcity uh but often they're they're problems of a different kind than the ones that uh these characters were principally uh concerned with right oh definitely yeah and like even from the, from the very sort of opening um the first chapter takes place in like 1938 
Um, it opens in a, a cramped train station, um, people crowded together. And like the the first character we're introduced to, um, uh, Leonid Vitalovich, he's a mathematician who's like, you know, kind of pondering where he's going to get a, a pair of boots or like by what sort of means he could convince the state to provide him with either a repair for the current pair uh, of boots he has or or new ones. And um, it's, a, it's a really interesting sort of opening chapter because you, you get a sense of this like... Um, very different sort of way of thinking about things. Like he sort of, um, he, he's watching around himself for pickpockets and he makes the kind of like allusion to extracting surplus value. Like there's a, there's yeah. a, there's an open <laughs> disdain for the kind of perceived remote capitalist economies and, um, and a sense of collective purpose. Yeah. He, it, it, it's, it's interesting to note that because, you know, um, well, just in passing, I just want to note that this, this person is usually known by his his last name uh, Kantorovich, uh, as you know, this famous ma- mathematician. But uh, in Russia, it's it's not so common to use that that name. So uh, the author opted to use the middle name as their last name. I mean, Russian names are extremely complex and strange, and I I don't really know very much about them. But I know the the naming scheme that they have and the one we have do not really map onto each other very well at all. Um, uh, so that is a thing that is kind of confusing about this book, but um, I, but yeah, as you were saying, um, it's it's interesting to note that at the start of the story, uh, he finds himself very much like admits the scarcity that he is trying to get rid of, right? Like that that he's stuck in it. Like everybody is poor, right? That is the world that he is living in. Yeah, definitely, and he's um, he is dreaming about a better world. He's um, he sort of he has this kind of interesting take where he's like he's lucky enough to live in the only country on the planet where human beings have seized the power to shape events according to reason and not simply be buffeted about by chance and superstition and greed. Um, so again, like there's there's this like soaked in this kind of ideology of like really wanting, really wanting this socialism stuff to play out properly and to. Uh, be a reasoned approach to managing an economy and providing for citizens. Um, yes, which is so so different to what we're kind of accustomed to, kind of like boundless cynicism of uh, our current sort of moment. Right, right. Um, yeah, he he's been brought up in this ideology, and uh, it makes sense to him. Uh, especially as a as a mathematician right it's it's appealing and and of course uh also um he sees in the fact that anti-semitism in the soviet union at this time is not as bad as it is in germany yeah (laughs) which you know better off here (laughs) yeah which was previously considered to sort of be like the pinnacle of science and reason and culture um you know that was the land that many german jews would uh identify with right as this this kind of cultured educated country where they could survive because of their commitment to german intellectual life mm. that all went away right with the nazis and sort of grasping a hold of this ideology of scientific rational socialism makes a lot of sense for him because you know he is a mathematician you know he's poor he wants more and also 
his chances of survival in this country are better than they are in Germany. Not to say there weren't a lot of Jews killed in uh, the Soviet Union, or that anti-Semitism wasn't quite prevalent in the country, but looking across the border, so to speak, he still feels a certain attachment to this country in a way that uh, he certainly wouldn't towards Germany. There's de there's a definite optimism. Um, there's like a, a real sort of uh, bright sort of optimism to the way he sort of thinks and, uh, and speaks. And as, as he's like uh, taking the train to his day job, um, at which he's, I think, tasked with optimizing the throughput of uh, like some factory um, producing wooden beams or something he's kind of daydreaming through the the kind of problem of like well if you optimize if you optimize a machine with its inputs and outputs and all that kind of stuff well you can you can kind of generalize that to a line of machines and a production line and it's like well if you do that you can kind of do it at the, the inter-factory level it's like okay right so the supply chains between factories you could do the same optimizations and he runs he runs through it in his head and he starts to realize that if you did that to the entire economy you could kind of Give yourself four, five, six percent compounding growth constantly, and that would just keep going. And he start he starts to see it. You know, the, he starts to see the possibility that um, this is this is an idea he could work on and um, and get somewhere with. And you could you could actually kind of create that horn of plenty for yourself by just kind of optimizing the stuff you're already doing. It's not it's not even it's not even a massive change he's proposing there. It's just kind of taking the productive processes they already have and trimming away the fat in both the inside the firm and in the kind of um, interactions between firms. Yeah, he describes it as a order snatched uh, out of the grasp of entropy, which is an idea that's very central to cybernetics overall. Um, right. Yes. Um, and we'll, we'll certainly get at that if we, we get to Mirowski because there's a deep history there. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, the important thing here is that, well, I mean, first of all, this is a thing that actually happened. Um, he did come up with this idea working for the Plywood Trust of Leningrad. Um, but uh, the, the important thing aside from that is that he's, it says in the book... Um, he only needed to think of the machines as abstract propositions, each one effectively an equation in solid form. Um, so it's this abstracting power that, like you said, could afford this kind of epochal change in in society. And like, he has this sense that this is like a momentous occasion because it says, um, in the era before half past two this afternoon, the people arranging the flow of... Uh, workers in factories had been able to get by with a fair degree of efficiency by using rules of thumb and educated intuition. Uh, but after half past two, <laughs> he's made this, you know, world historical significant uh, discovery because the important thing was that he was coming up with a form of mathematics that was actually something previous algebra had not been able to do, right? So assuming this stuff is of any, you know, real economic significance, which, I mean, it, it, it's used all the time now, uh, he really did make a kind of discovery, like a, 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 a significant addition to the, the sorts of things we can do as human beings that wasn't previously um, possible. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's a huge, huge step forward. But like for the, for the moment, he's just sort of like, 
seems to be kind of just working on the idea in his spare time and kind of biding his time for a while. Um, yeah, and and the the you were mentioning before like the the country is this kind of place of reason, um, and and the ultimate sort of misunderstanding and um, kind of fallacy that he falls into in his thinking and what represents the ideology that he's buying into is the statement that the Soviet economy was a clean sheet of paper on which reason was writing. And we're just, we're going to see in this book how <laughs> that is absolutely not true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, spoilers for the end, but it sort of doesn't, doesn't work out <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. Um, but for very good reasons and reasons that are worth understanding, uh, especially going forward from our, our time now with, um, ambitions towards effectively the same goal like the um, idea of a computerized economy that could um you know effortlessly produce um, enough to, to feed everyone um that brings us on to chapter two or chapter part one chapter two because they're, they're not actually numbered sequentially in that way um in 1959 where uh, khrushchev is on a flight to the united states for um, a stately visit and a bit of a wander around um it's an interesting chapter because it kind of gives you a bit of an insight into Khrushchev's sort of way of thinking and how he he has this sort of like definite ambition to bring about this um this era of plenty and like he he acknowledges the kind of the the darkness of the um the the founding of the Soviet Union in the Stalin years and kind of believes that this is now a sort of like um if not a clean slate, it's at least a, slub, a slate that has been rubbed clean and can be used as a springboard to get to actually nice things in the uh, the coming couple of decades. Um, yeah, he says, uh, we did the dirty work so they could inherit a clean world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's um, it's definitely like, I mean, Khrushchev is definitely, uh, as I think as it even comes from him being kind of the only real working class leader of the Soviet Union, Um and someone, someone who grew up with like proper an understanding of real sort of orthodox Marxism, um, that he he maintained this sort of ambition and this kind of like forward thinking perspective um, throughout his whole career, and even even when it started to kind of go off the rails, um, and even into his retirement. But um, at the moment, yeah, he's 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 going to visit the states, and he kind of arrives, and he's kind of like he's quite he's very impressed with the glitz and the shininess of all the things in America and the like the cars and the lovely infrastructure and the houses. And he seems even like taken aback at just how, how good it all sort of appears. And he does have this, this constant apprehension as well, that like the, 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 the glitz of the appearances, like he, he sort of remarks on uh, seeing the rows of like single occupant cars, like off into the horizon on the highways. And he kind of remarks how, how inefficient that actually is to have um, such a waste of uh, transport potential, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, there's that, um, there's a lot of really good characterization of Khrushchev here as someone who is deeply insecure, but um, kind of just gets by by sheer willpower and like kind of bluster, like, you know, which is, is seems to be pretty accurate to the sort of person he was that, you know, he's kind of renowned to be a, a sort of... Um, faintly ridiculous figure but one who is is very strong-willed in, in this chapter he he makes an ass of himself quite a few times and he, he seems to kind of reveal that he doesn't fully get how 
the United States actually works. Like at one point he's meeting with um, Wall Street people and he is, they're kind of yapping about something. But anyway, the, the Wall Street guys are like, well, if a, if a piece of legislation is popular on Wall Street, it's the kiss of death in Washington. And like Khrushchev doesn't get it. Like he doesn't get that because he's accustomed to a much more simple purely hierarchical system of organization. He, do, he doesn't seem to understand that there are these kind of like deeply entangled but slightly opposing poles of life in America that like Wall Street, Wall Street doesn't control Washington and Washington doesn't really control Wall Street, but like they're... Well, what I love about this, that scene though, is that there's so many different levels of misunderstanding that are going on. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, yeah, Khrushchev thinks about like his way of thinking about capitalism is first uh like thinking about it in terms of sort of the caricatures he would have been brought up with but he like he thinks about it in terms of the way the hierarchy of the soviet union is organized like you said uh, where like bosses give orders and people follow orders and it's like so these are the top bosses so everyone must follow their orders right <laughs> yeah like the, so that's like his misunderstanding but it's also the case that the um the wall street uh, executives are also like in a bit of misunderstanding because they've they've fallen um they've fallen hold of the opposite illusion which is that they aren't in charge of things <laughs> yeah <laughs> because like the thing is that like there's been a lot of um sort of marxist uh research about the state right that happened in the, that that happened in the 20th century and there's a lot of sort of like ruling class theory and like people like domhoff and stuff who actually like studied like like how does the capitalist ruling class rule right and one thing that's sort of obvious is that if you are a, a, an executive of like a Fortune 500 company, you are the private dictator of your company, right? Mm -hmm. Like you give orders, people follow orders in a way that is not all that dissimilar from what Khrushchev sort of assumes is true about society at large, right? Uh, but the thing is that because you're so used to being obeyed all the time, if you can't get what you want because of political interference or opposition, then you sort of misattribute a much greater power to the opposition than actually exists. Because your baseline is everybody does exactly what you want all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like for the, the, the capitalists are like, oh, no, we don't control anything. And there's like a line where Khrushchev is like, well, I won't pay any attention to you then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kind of like calling them on their bullshit because like, of course they have power, right? But they don't have power in exactly the way he thinks they do. So it's kind of like both sides don't really understand themselves and they also don't understand the other side of the conversation. There's a bit of a theme in this chapter of like the the actual dynamics being much more subtle and complex than the players realize they are. So like Khrushchev, uh, you know, misapprehends the actualities in, in America and like his, his hosts also don't seem to fully understand where he's coming from either and they they see each other in ideological terms and um you know there's there's even that sort of bit with the um his marveling at the 
the, the, the street vendor hamburger sort of thing is a wonderfully sort of amazing way to feed the populace and this kind of thing. And it's like, there's a, there's a, there's layers of ideology that are preventing them from actually getting a hold of the kind of concrete realities that, um, that are underlying it. So everyone's misunderstanding everyone. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of sort of like cross-cultural misunderstandings everywhere in this chapter. And, and it, it does do a lot to sort of exhibit the the Soviet attitude towards America, which is a very like love and love hate thing, right? Where like they have so much admiration for American mass production and technology, uh, and like the plenty of uh, America, but on the other hand, they still have that um, critique of capitalism, right? Um, so that was like very characteristic of of soviet thinking at that point in time and i think the author does a really good job of of getting that across because like as i think it's either mentioned in the notes or something in the in the text itself you know the soviets didn't really have that attitude as much towards europeans right like they were they were like well yeah like you know, they, they weren't so hot on Europe, right? <laughs> like, the, I think there's, like, a thing that's mentioned somewhere in the text where it's, like, the, the, the Soviets and Americans kind of had, like, this common understanding of being these, like, frontier countries and, and being obsessed with, like, sort of the mass production, like, this, this thing about scale, right, um, in a way that Europeans really didn't. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a really interesting sort of cultural in relationship and uh, one I think that the author brings to life pretty well here. Yeah, it's great and it's um it's really really nice piece of writing. Um chapter chapter 3 kind of expands on that a little bit, the sort of like fascination with the uh, American way of living where um there's a there's an exhibition, an American exhibition taking place in Moscow, and uh, this student um, Galina is being kind of sent along. She she's being directed by the state in some way to kind of go along and kind of essentially goad the the presenters into um, I don't know ad admitting that they're horrifying American chills or something. Uh, but like you know, yeah, kind she's of a do, doing her bit. Yeah, she, she's a heckler exactly. She's doing her bit to represent um, the Soviet Union. But um, it's kind of fun because like she's she's very very into it like cause this this is the way she's going to get a nice apartment in Moscow essentially that like um, yes. if she impresses the the handlers here um, and you know she's been instructed to uh, loudly question the Yanks and to draw them on uh, unemployment figures and this sort of thing <laughs> exactly right so yeah she's like a member of the uh, Young Communist League um, and uh, this is one of the sort of duties that she can do in order to get uh, political capital and try to advance her career because she's she's the daughter of like a minor official out in the out in the boonies uh, but she has dreams of getting into uh, Moscow getting a per, uh, a residence permit in Moscow which because of the way that the Soviet Union was organized, where movement was highly restricted, um, your geographical residence credentials said a lot about where you fit into the hierarchy of the society. Yeah, yeah. And this is a very, very hierarchical society, as the, uh, the author gets into a bit later. Um, but anyway, so she's, she's, at this, um, she's at this thing, and she's like absolutely stunned at the 
the the images of American prosperity. Um, there's some kind of like it's 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 again highlighting this kind of like cultural divide where this the Soviet kids seem to really value scientific and technical and artistic achievement, whereas the Americans are putting across an image of kind of almost banal prosperity, where it's just ordinary. Uh, white picket fence kind of stuff and she has this kind of line that like she keeps expecting the screens that to start showing technical and artistic achievements that the americans are especially proud of which is shows the <laughs> yeah, mentality they, they actually excel at something right rather than excelling at like because the images on the screen are just like yeah white picket fence stuff and kind of like pleasant ordinary pleasantries um and it's it's a it's a parade of consumer goods and uh, ordinary comforts which are being uh, on put on display here, and you see the huge contrast between the ambitions for the the two the two super nations and what they kind of what they value. You know? it, yeah, and it's it's just so interesting because it's like the communists say that they want plenty for the working class throughout society. And what they actually want is, like, this extremely meritocratic dictatorship of reason, right? That, like, that like the greatest achievements must be achieved. Like, we must make great works, right? Whereas the Americans claim to be about individual achievement, but <laughs> actually what they're providing is this very banal like lowest common denominator vision of what culture is. Um, and, and I mean, there is a convergence that kind of happens later in the century that, that, that he touches on. Uh, but it is, it is very interesting that like their stated values and their like exhibited values are <laughs> completely opposite. at odds in both <laughs> cases. Yeah, it's fantastic. And like even even the title of the chapter is Little Plastic Beakers, because that's the object of her fascination, the like colored plastic tumblers that she sees on display for the kitchenware. Um yeah. and she's something you could pick up in a dollar store. Right, right yeah. And it's but that's that's part of the point of what the hosts are trying to convey to her that like this these aren't images of uh, extravagance in America. This is stuff that you would expect the average kind of line worker to be able to afford. Um, yeah, and like the the Soviet guys kind of counter with like, is is this the national exhi exhibition of a powerful and, and important country, or is it the branch of a department store? Not realizing that for the Yanks, they they are one and the same. <laughs> you know, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is exactly the point they're trying to convey that that is those are one and the same thing. <laughs> you know, um, and like she eventually manages to fluster him, but only by like basically ragging on his racial background and like kind of that loses the sympathy of the crowd entirely. So it's, um, it's not really clear. Yeah. How it works it's out like the things that she says about race relations in America are not incorrect in any way, but they're, they're simply uncouth. Right? Yeah. Like they just, <laughs> they just, it's like, you just don't say that to <laughs> someone such an because it's, <laughs> it's just extremely mean, right? Um, that like, yeah, because her interlocutor who is working for the U.S. government and this 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 ex, uh, exhibition in the Soviet Union um, is a is a young black man, uh, and he he is spouting just absolute propaganda about race relations in america right that like like 
she can catch him on that because, you know, that is the thing that the Soviet propagandists actually did catch Americans on is like, hey, this is really messed up. And, you know, and it's it's still a thing today, right? Like, um, uh, like uh, Radio Sputnik, which is funded by uh, Russian government. Um, they have like that show by any means met by any means necessary. And uh, it actually has a lot of really like striking points about uh race relations in america that they commonly bring up right uh so like fun fun like hitting that weak point in american ideology was a thing that the soviets did and actually had a pretty significant impact um but to make it so personal to attack this guy, doing and to it just to the say, one like, guy, the, the one, this one fucking individual, she's just yeah, such a scumbag. Like, it's and, incredible. And it's like <laughs> you know his his personal dreams for what he might achieve in the future, and then just pointing out like, no, this is like a brutal system of racial oppression, mm. and like all your sort of like fancy words about uh, liberal progress mean nothing in the in in the face of just like this system um it's it's just extremely mean and said in a very mean-spirited way right like she's she's just grasping at anything to get back at him with in the face of like his this very like sort of smooth and produced um charming uh presentation like you know his his russian is excellent and you know he's trained in the in the way of like a tv presenter or something right uh but yeah, she she finally gets at him uh, with that, and and actually this ends up ruining her career, right? Yeah, she doesn't she doesn't go very much further, and like she pops up towards the end as well in kind of not not fantastic circumstances. Um, mm -hmm. But that's that's where the chapter leaves off, and we're kind of brought on to a um, chapter four titled "White Dust," where we meet a new character, uh, Emil Scheidelin, I think. Um, and he's he's on his way to visit uh, his fiance's family in the countryside outside Moscow. There's kind of an interesting bit here where it's like, even though it's like Moscow itself is barely over the horizon, this is a very hard place to reach. Like he has to take a train and then a bus and then There's walk. no road. There's no road. He has to walk across like a fucking swamp to get there. Um, yeah. And as he's doing so, he's kind of like, he's an economist and he's kind of like dreaming of this like um, consciously arranged society um and that kind of like an opening up of new kind of horizons for economists within the soviet union um and kind of like he also kind of talks about like how uh he's, he's just kind of daydreaming to himself but it's kind of like pondering on like how economists are now starting to be able to talk to mathematicians and biologists and computer scientists to kind of come together and share ideas and kind of start to build this movement towards um the consciously arranged society yeah, and I mean, uh, I think he, it, there's kind of a combination in his thinking between this sort of economics thinking where he says that you know, value unites all realms of human activity and a little bit of like the kind of dreams that Marx had about communism that we kind of discussed in our alienation episode, right? Um, yeah, they've got. A, about, he's got a really about, great sort of bit here where it's like the um, the makers of the things made turned alike into commodities, and the motion of society turned into a zombie dance. 
a grim cavorting world in which the objects and people blurred together until objects were half alive and people were half dead. <laughs> it's a pretty fantastic way of putting alienation, you know? Yeah, that's that's a, a pretty good gloss of, like, the first, you know, few chapters of Capital, right? So... Uh, definitely well written and it just shows that like what his intellectual perspective is right like he he does honestly have an uh, like i mean in the west the term vulgar marxism is thrown around a lot or or was thrown around around a lot by western marxists and there was like this this like obvious disdain for soviet marxism as um like basically like intellectually facile right because because the um because the humanists and social scientists in the soviet union were eliminated during the uh the stalin period and and replaced with technical experts um there there was this this is very much like looking down your nose at them and, and that still persists today but what he's trying to show here is that on the basics this person gets it right like emil understands more or less what the point of marx's critique was um and is trying to combine that with economics and uh with with cybernetics um and uh and that's sort of his dream for the future um and and he's like a good stand-in for that that movement as a whole yeah definitely um and yeah sort of continuing on the marxist bit um part two's introduction sort of picks up with um beginning by pointing out that like marx basically predicted the wrong revolution as it regarded um russia that like the 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 revolution that marx was kind of going towards or wanting to or like you know presumed would happen with that was that an advanced capitalist society would reach a point where um its own internal contradictions would lead it to a crisis and that like the socialist revolutionaries will be able to inherit um you know essentially undamaged the uh the full productive capacity of that capitalist society but that's like emphatically not what happened in russia <laughs> you know it's like a very very backward society that um or an, an underdeveloped uh material base that found itself in this position of like very quickly needing to um needing to build up um, that material base that should have happened under capitalist, I mean, should in quotes, but like would have happened under capitalist development before they could get on with the real project of building actual socialism. Right. And we, you know, this is a thing that it's not mentioned in the book, but it's a thing that was called socialist primitive accumulation, uh, taking up Marx's idea of primitive accumulation, the sort of originary gathering of, capital together by you know means fair and foul but usually foul yeah Um, very very foul in this case and that like i mean it it was certainly also very foul in the case of capitalism but it was a little bit more spread out over time right uh this was a very sort of like abrupt let's just do this in a very militarized and organized fashion and very Um, quickly and in the white dust chapter we see the sort of remnants of that process where the village that emil goes to he's like did something happen here and like because he's he doesn't know like he was kept in the dark growing up about the extent of the violence in the collectivization process right um 
and and you know he learns about the extreme poverty of the peasantry and how you know there's all this talk in soviet society and especially in moscow about how you know this is a worker peasant alliance and it is a, is a, is an advancing economy and everything's industrializing but if you go to the countryside you can see that there is surplus extraction that's happening in the crudest possible manner of just basically stealing things from the peasants and using them as a basis for building industrialization. Oh yeah, they were they were being fleeced, um, and that was that was yeah the, that that crash industrialization um, was to just take all the surplus value from crops and um, funnel all of the proceeds into the expansion of industry. Um, and that, that process created um, an, an absolutely hierarchical society where, um, like on, on the on, on paper, the workers owned the economy, but in practice, they were work like dogs around the clock. Um, with the the sort of gulag slaves being the, the bottom tier, and then you get the, the farmers, then the factory workers, then trained workers, managers, specialists, all the way up to commissars and then the ministers. Um and it's it's a pretty brutal society, one one in which you can very quickly move up or down the the ladder in either direction at any time, or or simply be kicked off the ladder entirely. <laughs> right, and I mean it. It's kind of like this grotesque representation of what modernity means. That that they created this machine to bootstrap the country into modernity. Um, and the gradations of hierarchy in the machine were designed in like explicitly towards that purpose, right? Like the at the very top, you have you have the um, the Politburo and the, the leadership of the the Communist Party who are moving the society in that direction, directing it towards that goal. And then underneath them, you have the technical workers who are the ones who are actually going to get the ideas that are necessary in order to realize this image of the future. And then you have the workers and so on and so on, all, all the way down to the peasantry and then the, the, the prisoners of the gulags. And it, it, it is meritocratic in a way that sort of earlier conceptions of modernity dreamed of, right? That like, oh, well, you're measured according to your worth. But the thing is that it creates this society of, of um, very intense preoccupation with status and, and a, a extreme anxiety about status. Um, like, you can all, like you can always fall, right? Like, you know, it, it, you never know what's going to happen next. That one thing you say wrong that one thing you you do which is a misstep and somebody's going to seize on that and just cast you down into oblivion right i mean literally in the case of the stalinist period where you would just you would just be taken out and shot or sent to siberia and worked to death um but in the khrushchev period you'd just be you know sent off to siberia to work some terrible uh bureaucratic post until the end of your days right and you know, if 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 you get one black mark on your permanent record, then your life is over. Uh, just just like uh, that that um, uh, Galena in the previous chapter, right? She she makes this one 
misstep in being uh, uncouth and then that's the end of her career yeah and you'd be you'd be condemned to just like kind of play out your days as a middle bureaucrat in some irrelevant shithole in the middle of the country um but like that's that's a kind of important point that like i mean like stalin's successors did tame that kind of weird savage growth machine and um life did improve and all the sorts of things afterwards um they had these kind of like periods of pretty pretty incredible growth um and that that was there was a marked transition from the kind of militarism of the stalinist period to a more sort of managerial tone uh later uh, especially under khrushchev but there was there was something kind of off about this growth that like the growth was pretty good but it was slowing at this point um and there was kind of problems with um I think ultimately the core of it seems to be that it was a very inefficient system. That uh, the the Soviet the early earlier Soviet growth was kind of fueled by cramming more inputs into the system. Um, they weren't necessarily very good at producing the outputs, but like when you could just level an entire forest and feed it into the um, plywood making machine, then like you're, you're going to have pretty pretty in- incredible plywood output. Um, but there was this kind of growing question of like, well, the growth is actually slowing down. How are we going to stimulate it to um, to take off again? Because you know the the, the the ambitions were still very lofty. They kind of wanted to to actually hit these these goals eventually, um, preferably yeah. within the century. Um, so how do, how do you keep this thing growing? Um, yeah, well, within twenty years. Yeah, like yeah, right? that was from. Uh, <laughs> Or <laughs> you had very little time to pull this off, in the, you know. Yeah, because uh, the target was 1980, I believe, was the, the year 1980. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it would have been full communism. Would have been a hell of a, a coup to actually pull it off. <laughs> but that's that's where that's where our boy uh, Vitalovich comes back into the um, the equation in 1960, where he's he's presenting at a conference uh, for technologists, cyberneticians, and economists. Um. This is a kind of an interesting chapter, yeah, where he's kind of like talking about um, his plan for a system that'll optimize the economy according to a, a plan that is set, um, but that, that it'll be it'll be a lot more efficient than what you could achieve otherwise um, through a system of shadow prices that are dynamically recalculated constantly. He gets a bit of pushback from the the, the Marxist-Leninist crowd. Um, and is, is sort of accused of trying to just reconstruct some of the... Um, elements of capitalism that would be uh, would be dangerous to the society um right by introducing a price driven system uh then he he is accused of reintroducing capitalism um and this is a very sort of fine point of economic theory that they are <laughs> arguing over here yeah <laughs> uh, but the, the 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 sort of rebuttal that kantorovich gives is that um well yes there are prices and they measure um opportunity costs but like these od values um are not are not market prices they're prices that represent the fulfillment of the plan objectives right so on the surface level they appear to be market prices but they're not arrived at through a market um and the money that is used in this price system is not money in the capitalist sense right it doesn't have all the properties of money um it just has some of them so yeah this is a 
rather rather fine point they're arguing over yeah definitely and i kind of wonder like it's is it possible that like because it was such a fine point that it was quite easy to misunderstand throughout the um the whole society and kind of like might have actually stymied the um the efforts to make it come about um yeah just... no like this is a thing that that definitely came up in the socialist calculation debate and and it, it is a a common accusation of this these kinds of systems that like well you're introducing prices you're introducing profit questions aren't you just reintroducing capitalism um and the the really sort of key point there of whether it's a yes or no is are the overall plan objectives materially different from those you would see in a profit making market system right like are the social objectives that are being decided which sort of um indicate the boundary of the optimum um actually something that are like set in a rational way that is concerned with the the qualitative details of what the society is trying to achieve or are they just trying to get the most stuff yeah right yeah. And in that case, well, then it, it's pretty much just like capitalism, right? So um, that's that's where the 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 detail uh, lies. And as you said, it's one that Kantorovich would be vulnerable on, and it's why Boyarsky um, and his old guard political economist crowd uh, were earlier able to denounce him because it looks like it's just an argument for reintroducing capitalism um or something like the nep yeah yeah um fortunately he does pick up some allies here where there's like a um a sense of optimism for like what could be done um with this kind of technique um and also a sense that like they're coming out of the kind of um or no, they're they're coming into a kind of an era where this kind of uh, thought might be able to be entertained without getting them shot. Yeah, and the the important thing there is that like there's a changing of the guard that is happening, where adherence to a certain form of um, Marxist-Leninist dogma is being replaced by adherence to a dogma of the power of mathematics. And and the the authority of mathematical exactitude, um, and this is what this debate is all about, right? Is like the reason why Boyarsky loses is because everybody in the room recognizes that that is the old game, and the new game is about scientific authority based on mathematical exactitude. Yeah, and there's there's a sense that their their day has come. Um that the like this this guy's been biding his time for a while now kind of developing these 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 ideas and um there's a strong sense that this is the the direction the future is going to take um and we get to see a little bit of that in the next chapter um where we see lebedev a computer designer and it's it's a pretty light chapter in which he's kind of uh in the basement of the institute of precise mechanics and he's working with a new machine it's, there's a there's a lot of language in the kind of thing of like describing uh, energy flows through circuits and how they how they achieve the kind of logic um there's a lot lot in here about power energy and control um and how he as a technologist is able to kind of project uh, power and control through the machine um yeah the, the the machine is often described as like a faithful idiot 
tireless. Um, it, 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 it's very concerned with like showing that the machine is kind of like a beast of burden or a laboring thing um, that isn't capable of thinking and then showing how like Lebedev is entranced by the idea that this thing that is just providing rote operations or just doing them very quickly is able to start to produce meaning or some kind of thought-like stuff, right? Yeah, definitely. And like it's a, the, the thing it's working on at the moment is uh, potatoes uh, considered as an abstraction and trying to um, optimize their um, optimize optimize their movement uh, around the economy in in a way that a, a market in potatoes wouldn't be able to. Um, it's kind of the explicit objective here. Um, even says like there's a kind of nice line that like market the market's clock speed is laughable, so there's, there's yeah, a strong I, sense of the te the technologists um, having like they, they've they've got the the secret trick they've got the one weird trick that makes all this good stuff possible that the um, the their op opponents on the other side of the world just haven't cottoned on to yet. Right, and so he's kind of like representing the the socialist position that was championed by Oscar Longa um, about planning and calculation and the sort of way that he's thinking about this problem is that the market is a computer that can only work out one solution, right? So it's... Um, uh essentially it's like a serial process right um it, it it can only in real time work out uh solutions to the coordination of supply and demand um whereas a computer can in parallel run a number of different simulations about what the optimum might be and then the planners could choose the best one so it's 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 kind of like you you have predictive power and you also have the power of being able to do parallel processing instead of just serial processing um and this is what he sees as like the decisive advantage of this rational planning system enhanced with computer technology yeah and it's um it's a very it's a very convincing uh argument the way it's the way it's pushed and it's like a lot of there's a lot of energy behind it and there's a lot of um uh like brightness and optimism a, a real glow to the kind of uh, language the character uses to um to think about these uh, these problems um yeah and and they're um he has the same kind of misunderstanding about what the Soviet Union is, where he thinks that the planned economy is actually this rational thing that is amenable to being enhanced in this way by computer programming, um, right? Like that, that essentially giving out this plan and issuing these, these directives is already what the Soviet Union does. We're just going to do it better. Yeah. Right? 
It's a real Which is misapprehension. a deep <laughs> misunderstanding of the way that the planning system actually works. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's, like, it's, it's, it's really kind of weird how far off the mark these guys were with um, their... Just, or, or like how the, that society had managed to contain two distinct bubbles of thought mm -hmm. that had no real interaction with each other and like weren't in a position to correct each other in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and that these, these, these like two parallel tracks of work were happening um, under just exactly. Like, yeah. Complete misunderstanding. And, and he, he was, he was, he was working from the image of the economy that was given by Goss plans, official descriptions, not the way it actually worked. Right. Because that was privileged information that was held within the ranks of the managers and not given to people like him. Yeah, um, they were, weren't in a position to know it at all, um, which is kind of the, the nature of that sort of society. Um, the next chapter is, is um, one in which we're introduced to uh, one Sasha Gallick. Uh, it was a writer. It was um, being sort of asked to um, draw up a sort of a compelling fiction of uh, what life will be like in 1980. Um he seems to be very disillusioned at this point. This is 1961, and it's it's the day of the kind of party conference, I think, where Khrushchev announces the intention to kind of um, transition to uh, cybernetic communism. But um, Gallic's sort of way of describing this stuff is interesting in that, like, he says that Moscow is like a set. It's it's like it it's quite nice to look at from certain angles, but then when you look at what's under the paint, it's a bit ratty and kind of like. It's all it's all kind of put on for show, and he he doesn't seem to even at this kind of early stage doesn't seem to believe um, in the in the vision. You know, he's he's the first real voice of dissent that we hear in the uh, in the book, right? And he, as a writer, he has enjoyed the freeing up of discourse that uh, accompanied the rise of Khrushchev, but he also has begun to feel the limits of it. Um, and, and what the kind of work that he is doing is, like, he's a kind of figure similar to someone who you might see uh, working on doing the latest Marvel movie these days, right? Like, he's just producing kind of entertaining fluff. Um, and... This has uh, bred a certain amount of cynicism in him. And I believe this person actually ended up defecting. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, certainly he he is dissatisfied. And, and this is meant to kind of show, like, what the life of the official writer class was like in the mm. Soviet Union at this time, right? That, he lives pretty well, seemingly. Um <laughs> Yeah, especially yeah, by yeah, contrast yeah, like, with everyone else. That's right. I remember, I remember when I was in the um, when I was in the Czech Republic. Um, I went to this place where the writers would get together and meet during the communist era, um, and it was literally a repurposed palace. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> like out of the countryside just gonna get together and, and hobnob there right um and yeah and it was just it was just an old palace that was repurposed for the writers and the person who was showing me around who was a professor there uh, just 
evidenced like extreme disdain from for everything that these people represented um so that gives you a sense of kind of like they're just they're just hacks right like <laughs> that's what they were raised to be is is hack writers um you know in in the same way that we might kind of make fun of a thomas friedman these days um, <laughs> yeah they're very much that sort of person just these kind of sycophantic followers of the powerful and you know if they have private um private uh misgivings about the system uh they're not allowed to voice them and they keep them to themselves right yeah he he seems to know his position like he's he's a he's aware that he is in a very privileged position um in this kind of society and he he does seem to just keep it keep his misgivings to himself um it's a, it's an interesting sort of look into the kind of um firstly yeah into the the uh the sort of upper classes of this society and also into somebody who's not completely on board with um or, do, or or at least doesn't seem to believe that this um vision of plenty is actually possible um yeah and then part three sort of kicks off with um, a little bit of a rundown of how the um soviet union kind of dismantled its university and education systems and kind of uh replaced it all with stem <laughs> and let, let the uh humanities wither entirely <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, well, well, I didn't let them wither. They actually just shot everyone. So. Yeah, it was completely purged. <laughs> <both departments. laughs> Which is like, uh, yeah, and like, it, it'll turn out that this, this like, hampered that state pretty badly. Like that, um, because like, I mean, so what they were doing was like, um, you know, putting all their money into STEM, like all engineers and. Um, and scientists and such, and like uh, just pruning away all the other sort of branches. Um, and this this was like especially because like they had this um, already supposedly perfected version of a, an orthodox Marxism that didn't need any further development, you know, uh, supposedly. And like, well, you don't you don't need philosophers anymore if you figured out philosophy and all this kind of this way of thinking. And um, yeah, just completely got rid of got rid of everyone, um, and le yeah, left themselves in a very bad situation, really the the remaining social scientists fulfilled a role very similar to the role that economists uh fulfill in our society which is to just kind of parrot a fairy tale version of an like a, a fairy tale of why the society is the best of all possible worlds right um and the critical intellectuals were liquidated right um and because the critical intellectuals were gone that did create very very serious problems uh for able, being able to um realistically assess the problems of the society um and, and in a in a kind of sophisticated way right um in a way that didn't in a way that didn't approach all of the problems as engineering problems that you just had to solve using technical means um and and yeah like i mean there is a formal similarity to what has happened under neoliberalism with what happened under stalin right that no they aren't taking us out back of the university and shooting us 
They don't need to. <laughs> they can let yeah, you die on your own. <laughs> they, they just make sure that the departments are starved and there's no jobs and um, and and everything is put under the firm jackboot of an administrative class that uh, removes any possibility of free thinking, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, it's it is eerily reminiscent of the the present moment, and like especially mm. in the kind of like the um, like our the, the the hegemonic sort of order today don't they don't have anything resembling a critical theory of anything like they've they just sort of have the mindless regurgitation of the stuff they're accustomed to, which is kind of where the Soviets ended up here, where they didn't they no longer had anyone that was capable of critiquing anything, you know, so they couldn't develop anything new. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 um, this blindness, I think, is kind of what Marcuse was getting at in One Dimensional Man, as sort of like a discussion of like where modernity ends up going. Um, that 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 there's no critical distance. Um, uh, but I mean. It just reminds me so much of what happened a few years ago in Japan, where the government was pretty much like, let's eliminate the humanities faculties from all the universities except the top ones. Um, and yeah, the, the just and like that was like a sort of directive from on high. But I feel like that's happening through a kind of slower process of change throughout the world. Right. Um, there's a very conscious sense of crisis among humanists. Um, and and I, I feel that even if the social scientists are, even if the social sciences are surviving to perhaps a somewhat greater extent than the humanities, um, there is the problem we discussed about earlier or in our Graeber episode about like, we don't actually get any new ideas out of these departments anymore <laughs> yeah right like <laughs> that they're just kind of retreading old ground um and so it's very very concerning because when it comes to providing mature solutions or sort of complex and nuanced solutions to social problems um it is necessary to do some deep thinking in a way that isn't just about optimization, right? And 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 about uh, providing clever technical solutions um, while ignoring the 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 actual implement quote unquote implement implementation <laughs> details, right? <Yeah>. Like <laughs> that's the way that these early sort of figures we've been talking about see these problems is like. Oh, like yeah, we're like we're gonna come up with these these awesome algorithms and these cool computers, and then everything else is just implementation details. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that that way of thinking really took root when um, like these uh, science towns started to be established, where um, the scientists and engineers lived in um, in kind of isolated bubbles that kind of I, I suppose resembled the future that the society as a whole was trying to get to. Where they had they had a lot more freedom and a lot more access to resources than the uh, the main population did, um, but this this then put them in a sort of bubble where they could in some ways sort of consider the um, the difference between themselves, like the uh, the scientists in the in the science towns, versus the 
uh, quote, engineers who, who ran the state. And they could kind of see, with, with a little bit of distance, they could see the kind of um, uh, stupidity of a lot of the um, the, the running of the, uh, the apparatus of the state, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it sort of started to form a bit of a divide between the, the two classes. Um, uh, they would eventually be brought back into line. Hey everyone, Shane here. We had to split this recording session into two episodes, so join us again in two weeks for part two of our discussion of Red Plenty. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod, we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit, we're on all the podcasting apps. So if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe, like, rate, or just share us with your friends. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks.